Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I'm Mary Beth Kingston, the Chief Nursing Officer for Advocate Health, and I'm your host for this Outcome Rocket series focused on awareness and solutions for workplace violence. My guests today are two people that I have the pleasure of working with, Randy Steffen and Mark Concordia, and I'll just say a brief word about each. Randy's the Vice President for Security at Advocate Health in the Midwest region, and he's a role, that's a role he's had there since 2021. His foundational experience is complex risk management, and he gained this as a military officer working in the uh, career field of strategic intelligence. And prior to joining Advocate Health, he held similar roles with Kaiser Permanente, Sutter Health, New York University, and Cleveland Clinic. And then we, we are also joined by Mark Concordia, Mark is the Executive Director for Workforce Violence Prevention at Advocate Health in the Midwest also. Mark's foundational grounding stems from roles as U.S. Customs Service Special Agent, as a Police Department Detective, an Integrity Compliance Investigator, and a longtime member of an FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. He is an Association of Threat Assessment Professional. He is a certified threat manager and is regarded as a subject matter expert in the emerging discipline of threat assessment and threat management. So it took a lot of time to introduce them because their backgrounds are so different from mine and so exceptional and really will prepare us for the discussion that we want to have today. So Mark and um, Randy, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Let's start out by saying, you know, we've been talking in this series about the increase that we're seeing in violence in our society in general, and certainly that is spilling over into our healthcare settings. I think the, the big question for all of us is what can we do to prevent violent events from occurring? And today we wanna discuss how threat and risk assessment can contribute to prevention efforts. So let me start, Randy, with you. What is the difference between these two concepts? Because I'm hearing them both used often interchangeably. Well, thank you very much, Mary Beth. That's a, that's a fantastic question. Uh, so they're very closely related, but uh, the distinctions are important. And I might sort of summarize it as a risk assessment. It really focuses on a place or a program. And it's more generic in terms of looking at risk factors of a place and what might potentially happen there. By contrast, a threat assessment stems from a very specific, unique, or granular threat. So one might say in a risk assessment, we might look at a building or a place or a facility, a hospital. And for a threat assessment, we might look very specifically at a person. And we look more narrowly at the risk factors involved with that person, their actions, their behaviors, uh, perhaps their prior history, what they've said, what they've done, what inhibiting factors they might have in their life, what magnifying factors. And all of that sums to come up with a level of concern we have about them and the threat they may pose to our organization and our people. That way we can more closely uh, work to mitigate it in a very tailored and precise way. So, Randy, is this, you know, as we've talked about workplace violence, we've talked about some of the violence that occurs from patients. Um, is this less about patients and more about broader uh, groups of people? Yeah, it, it's a great question. So uh, OSHA typically defines workplace uh, violence, or I shouldn't say defines it, categorize it as really having uh, four major buckets. You could have violence that stems from a criminal event, which could be posed by anyone. 
Uh, you could have patient on teammate violence. You could have lateral violence or teammate or teammate. And you could also have uh, domestic violence spillover from a third party. Okay. So when we think of threat assessment, what the, the person who poses the threat is of concern to us because in terms of how we can mitigate it and better understand it. But uh, we kind of use that typography to understand it. It helps in our consistency of reporting. But when it really comes down to the specific person making the threat, we're less interested in about their demographic than the threat that they pose. Right. Thank you for that clarification. So, Mark, you're an expert in this area. Um, and I think, you know, for those of us in healthcare, we're very accustomed to risk assessment. So in, in a lot of areas and particularly in workplace safety, looking at our access points, looking at our buildings, you know, are people isolated during work? But threat assessment is a little bit different. I mean, it's not something we've, we've actually used for years and years and years in healthcare. So can you tell me more about how these concepts, the ones that Randy described, um, how they connect to the work that you do in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, threat assessment or behavioral threat assessment and management, which is commonly referred to, is an emerging discipline. It has about 50 years, though, of robust scholarship and guides and a structured methodology to prevent violence. And so it can be applied across sectors. And I have experience in the K-12 sector, in the community sector, in law enforcement, in organizations, and now in healthcare. And we can apply this structured best practice methodology to not only prevent what we call targeted or predatory violence, but also affective violence within our healthcare setting. And that is that bedside violence sometimes that we see. So the, the, the keys to adopting it to a healthcare uh, organization to prevent targeted violence is the necessity to establish uh, best practice, high reliability protocols, the ability to have uh, site-based experts or site-based teams that can uh, intake triage and those teams need to be trained and those teams need to be supported by system-based resources such as certified threat managers, legal, DEI, and other uh, type of behavioral health resources to form a multidisciplinary coalition to do this dynamic threat assessment that Randy had mentioned earlier. So it is applicable and how we can apply this to not only because what we know, Mary Beth, what we know about targeted violence or predatory violence, which is there's really two distinctive modes of violence that we look at, affective and predatory. Uh, behavioral threat assessment and management is specifically designed for targeted violence because people who commit these type of violence do not snap. That's a process that they go through. It is a detectable pathway to violence. And if we develop high reliability protocols, best uh, created on the best practice recommendations from the Joint Commission, OSHA, the American Psychological Association, the Society for Human Resource Management, Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, and many, many more, we can take this structured methodology and infuse it into a multi-component workplace violence prevention strategy. The key with behavioral threat assessment and management in healthcare, which is so valuable, is that we like to start with restorative and therapeutic interventions before we move to punitive. And that aligns with our mission as a healthcare organization. Can you can you um, clarify for me those terms? And I, I'm not even sure I got them right. Predatory. Sure. And um, effective violence, effective. right? Yeah, I haven't I haven't heard those terms used before, so I yeah. in context. So if you oh, absolutely, absolutely, I apologize for that. So affective violence is considered um, spontaneous, 
it is considered impulsive. It usually manifests from a precipitating triggering event, and it has a distinctive uh, physiological response. People get angry, they get excited, they escalate along a, a, a continuum that's very fast. Now, that is harder to prevent because it happens very quickly, but it is, we can prevent it by applying the same concepts of early warning and recognition and then applying effective interventions. Now, targeted violence is what you see in the higher order violence that unfortunately we're seeing manifest more frequently in our society. The active shooters, the domestic violence homicides, this mode of violence lacks autonomic arousal. It, it, it has aspects of preparation, planning, premeditation. And because it is a process that people go through and there are warning signs that they exhibit, we can intervene using behavioral threat assessment and management and prevent these from escalating to an attack. So the behavioral threat assessment is much more applicable to that time of, you know, thought out planning. I love when we we have signs in, in a lot of our healthcare facilities that, you know, we have a zero tolerance or low tolerance for violence. And and I often think that I think, you know, someone is not going to look at a sign if, if there's a triggering moment. It's important to set the stage to have that that context and to have that um, kind of that warning there for everyone. But I think that, you know, our training and de-escalation and trauma-informed care are the things that will help us. Uh, in those situations, but in the ones you're talking about, this is really where the threat assessment is applicable. Yeah, the threat assessment itself, that process is applicable to that. The program itself can also look at those spontaneous or effective threats. And that's how we've actually synthesized and integrated the concept of BTAM to also be a preventative methodology for that effective violence. So we know that threats sometimes are impulsive. We know that many people that we deal with are in crisis and they could be trauma triggered. So we use that same intake and screening process to have our experts look at those threats to determine, are they substantive or are they transitory? And then if they're transitory, we still safety plan. We still talk about prevention to, to mitigate that risk of that patient, visitor, teammate escalating again the next time we have contact with them. But you're right. Traditionally speaking, behavioral threat assessment and management is the best practice to prevent active shooter events. Okay. And can you, um, can you give me an example, maybe from uh, either your prior work or even just a general example of what this actually would look like in a in a healthcare setting. Yeah, so absolutely. So you know, we we don't we know in healthcare settings sometimes we have uh, let's use a patient example. We have a patient that may be uh, in our facilities for some type of medical condition, and for some reason they have they develop a fixation on a doctor or a fixation on a nurse, and these are usually usually persistent delusions of some type of relationship and they develop into stalking events. So the key is we built out these protocols for our clinicians, our, our teammates to understand and recognize, okay, there is something that we can do with this. And I just don't have to worry and be in psychological fear every time I leave our facility. So that's an intake process. They report it to us. We look at it. We do what we call a protective intelligence uh, search. And we look at the risk factors that Randy talked about. We look at biopsychosocial risk factors and protective factors. We use that to inform a gathering of the threat assessment team. We bring a multidisciplinary team together and it must be multidisciplinary, usually encompassing patient safety, HR, compliance, legal, our expert resources and the site clinicians. And what do we do? We align. 
We identify the risk factors that are involved with targeted violence, and we always assess with an eye to restorative and therapeutic interventions. We support our teammates with safety plans and also um, awareness and trauma-informed interviews. And then we look to redirect the patient or the individual who has this you know, persisting delusional fixation. And we've done that very successfully in terms of, you know, having interviews of stalkers or these type of patients in which we redirect them away. We get them to move on. And we usually, again, try to do that therapeutically and restoratively first. If not, then we can engage other community-based partners like mental health resources or our law enforcement partners. And we continue, we don't just do this once. It's threat assessment and management is the assessment of risk-relevant data and protective data, applying that knowledge to case management strategies. It's an interrelated process. And we've built out the development and the high reliability protocols to do that on a longer term as needed. So it truly is a science evidence-based approach, which is great. You know, I'm curious, and this is either for Randy or Mark, as you were talking um, particularly about some of the relationships, uh, are we seeing an increase in these type of either intimidation or harassment um, in this manner with social media. Rare, do you want to take that or should I? Yeah, how about if we do the tag team, Mark? Sounds I'll, great. Uh, I'll lead and you can uh, fill in any gaps. And so, so you know, Mary Beth, I think one thing that's useful, and Mark talked about uh, multiple sectors or industries beyond healthcare that, that sort of affects um, many different industries. And I'm not saying this is a sociologist, I'm saying this is a citizen. So just broadly, you know, uh, there has been increasing intolerance um, in terms of different point of views that people might have, uh, polarization of view, mm -hmm. just politically, but on social issues. Social media isn't the culprit, but it becomes a bit of a magnifying factor. Um, and so in some respects, of course, our patients and our teammates are are microcosms of society. And so people present for care and they bring with them both our caregiving teams and our patients and our visitors, whatever biases they may have, uh, whatever perceptions they may have. And this macro environment of incivility of which social media contributes to is really what leads to the types of effective violence that Mike, uh, Mark talked about. Um, uh, intolerance, uh, intimidation, bullying, uh, anger, fear, frustration, and all of those things are what we see manifesting at the point of care. Um, and it's very difficult to measure it in part because our, our teammates, our caregivers are warriors in a sense. Uh, and it's very difficult to draw a line between tolerating poor behavior and demonstrating compassion for our patients and delivering excep exceptional care. Um, we can measure things like assaults and physical acts more readily. And gratefully, uh, we're seeing in our healthcare system a uh, decline in some of those important measurements. And there's so many factors at play, but I'd like to point to one of them broadly is the work of all of our leaders and all of our caregivers in adopting the best practices Mark talked about in training, in de-escalation, in supporting each other. Right. 
And, and Mary Beth, if I could, I'll just add a, a, a brief comment to, to the social media and internet impact of what we're seeing. So Randy mentioned it, and it's we in our field, we, we call it echo chambers. So individuals, so a pathway to violence begins with a grievance. It's, it's an in, sense of injustice, something a person feels slighted. And then they have an ideation of violence as an acceptable resolution to that grievance. Oftentimes, that, that commitment or that justification for violence is derived through social networking on sites and, re, and with other individuals who have the same type of warped sensation, uh, uh, you know, ideas about how to, how to deal with uh, some of the stressors they see in their lives today. So we call those echo chambers. And what's very interesting is that along that pathway, the next stage is research and planning. And the internet has made research and planning uh, a valuable tool for these individuals. And I conducted in an interview as I was preparing to write a, a journal article in the Threat Assessment and Management Journal of an individual who was convicted of attempting a, a premeditated target event, uh, an, a, an active shooter event. He was convicted of it. And I interviewed him while he was in prison. And he told me the single thing that moved him from idea to action was his ability to research and plan on the internet and to connect with like-minded individuals and parroting their warped beliefs. Yeah, that's, and I, that's what I'm, that was what was going through my mind when I asked that question too. Wow. Um, uh, another impact of social media. Um, so Randy, when, as we've talked about threat assessment, and, and it's so important that we distinguish in my mind between risk and threat. So I appreciate both of you doing that. But what does success look like in a threat assessment program? Yeah, well, so uh, one, of the, one of the things that I, I lead with is just uh, less slogans and more programming. And, and there's nothing against slogans and mantras and aspirations. So I, I don't wanna be dismissive of them, but what people really care about at the end of the day is being safer and feeling safer. So when I think of success, the brass tack center of the bullseye measures are fewer incidents of workplace violence, fewer injuries that stem from those incidents, uh, reduced severity of injuries that do occur, um, and then greater psychological safety um, in terms of the perceptions that our teammates have. Fewer incidents, fewer injuries, less severity of injuries, and our teammates feeling safer because they indeed are. And there are a whole lot of other things we can measure numerically, but to me, the center of the bullseye for the effectiveness of the program are those things. Okay, great. Um, you know, you both have had tremendous experience in other um other industries or other areas uh, other than healthcare. What, how does threat assessment differ in healthcare? I mean, we know, we know even violence in the workplace differs because of the, of the nature of the work that we do providing care for patients, families, communities. How does it differ or does it differ? It does differ. Um, I, I, in my experience, I think one of the closest sectors uh, to healthcare is our K through 12 environment. And the reason why I say that is that we have special relationships with our patients. We have special relationships with our teammates. We have to balance those special relationships that the care and the, and the trauma-informed uh, empathy that we have for our patients who are struggling and their families who are in very crisis moments. But we also have to balance that psychological and physical safety for our 
teammates. In the K through 12 environment, they have special relationships with their students. And the students often, un unfortunately, can be the source of some of these threats, as well as our patients. So those two are similar. What we have in healthcare, though, is we have the ability to apply our trauma-informed strategies and therapeutic and restorative interventions over things like, you know, moving straight to potentially a patient dismissal or moving straight to, to some type of punitive action against a, a caregiver or a visitor. Mm -hmm. We have to balance that. And that's the challenge in healthcare, but it can be done if we create these high reliability protocols and we all engage in a culture of shared responsibility for safety and support. Oh, thank you. That That's really helpful, I think, to hear um, for our listeners and certainly for myself. So, Randy, what advice do you have for someone starting a threat assessment program in a, in a healthcare organization? Yeah, Mary Beth, so I, you know, I think there are so many things where a person might uh, or a leader may feel overwhelmed, like, what, you know, where do I begin? But uh, in, in my view, it starts with executive uh, buy-in or leadership. So whether a member of a team or a leader in a function brings it forward to executive leadership or executive leadership or a board has a vision or a passion, um, without executive leadership and buy-in that's then cascaded at the various levels of the leadership uh, of the organization, um, you won't have the tailwinds that you need uh, to, to really have a meaningful program. So I realize that may be a statement of the obvious, but sometimes it's important uh, to begin there. Um, I also think it's critical uh, to have uh, multifunctional partnerships. So Mark mentioned when he was talking about threat assessment teams, the importance of a multidisciplinary approach. And for us, for Mark and I and others, these aren't laundry lists. There's people behind. So when we say HR, legal, risk, privacy, compliance, safety, there are people and there are functions that are stewards of their own functional area. And sometimes with a program like uh, threat assessment, which is new, and Advocate Health is early adopters to this space, it creates a big change management dynamic because we're coming up against different boundaries internally. So I think if I was starting a program, I would advise someone to view that in, in a very positive way, but in an eyes open way. Um, I also would advocate for some framework of governance. Um, and I don't say governance is a bureaucrat. I say governance more like a playbook. Um, a football team wouldn't just run out on the field without being able to call a play and understand who was playing what position. So I think a governance framework is critically important. And there's two things I'll close with, ending with a total of five. Um, the, the next to last is expertise. Uh, the organization has to infuse itself with additional expertise that may not already be resident. So Mark is one example of that, um, but we've also brought in a team of threat assessment consultants, analysts, and investigators to help actually execute this work. So with all of the good intent, but minus the expertise, a, an emerging or an aspirational program would be challenged. And lastly, of course, is resources. This type of program is more about process than it is significant investment. Um, it is the most value-based investment I could think of for an organization to bring in people and processes and competency. But absent those resources, uh, slogans and aspirations wouldn't go very far. So that's my five-point formula for success for, uh, for an entity that might wish to uh, improve their workplace safety. Great. And, and then could you also comment, so I love the idea of bringing these, this multidisciplinary group together, because I do think 
um, particularly in healthcare settings, you've got so many different factors to look at and the clinical pieces are, are really important as well. What about the external engagement, um, involvement with law enforcement? How does, how does threat assessment tie together with, with those organizations and those community supports? Hey, Mark, I'd like to invite you to talk to that, particularly because we have a recent near win uh, that helps illustrate this point. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, Mary Beth, in my experience over the last 20 years in, in building out community-based partnerships, it's a, it's a team sport with this. Um, we, we talk about in our discipline identifying reliable third-party threat management partners. And we can do everything in our four walls of our institutions and our organizations, our hospitals, to develop those partnerships and those threat management partners, but we stop at the door. So it's critically important to engage our community-based partners. And what we see the engagement manifesting in is crisis behavioral health crisis response and law enforcement, um, third-party management, mm -hmm. being able to work with our community partners, the FBI, our local law enforcement, the community-based mental health response teams to build out a common understanding, to build out intake and screening protocols to formalize a warm handoff when cases meet the criteria to engage a third party threat management partner. But what my experience is that our law enforcement officials are do not have the level of expertise and knowledge around mitigating risk. They're very reactive in their approaches. They look for a crime that's been committed. They look for uh, potentially uh, signs of a mental health crisis and the person is a danger to themselves or others. They're very limited in their response. So we have to work together with the community to build out those competencies. And an, a win that Randy was talking about is that we are working with the uh, Sheriff's Department, the Cook County Sheriff's Department, to formalize a partnership through an MOU with their crisis mental health response team. So when we have cases in which we have decided that it meets the criteria for engagement in a third party outside our organization that, that could involve a patient or it could involve a teammate or a visitor, that we train together, that we've built intake protocols, we meet, we trust each other, and we do a warm handoff that has higher reliability that the case is going to be actioned in a way that's that, that really is preventative. And that's oftentimes bringing psychological uh, resources and management to the individual, coordinating efforts across different siloed community partners. And that's the key. That's how we become stronger as a, it protects ourselves and our organization, but it also protects our community as we all work together. And I had much experience in New York building out what we call community-based threat assessment teams. It's actually a best practice now in New York. And we're working diligently with our law enforcement partners, our mental health partners, our law enforcement, both at the state, local, and federal levels to all speak in one unified voice, all using the same high reliability protocols and working together that is compliant with our regulations and our privacy laws. And we can do this if we do it together. Yeah. And, and an extremely important point you brought up is proactivity. It's very difficult in the moment. Um, I, I'm sure our community partners and law enforcement are pulled in 8 million directions. So in the moment, things are difficult. But if you do some proactive planning and, and also I think important to encompass uh, the fact that we have uh, an increase in behavioral health issues, but this is not strictly a behavioral health 
uh, problem for sure. Uh, yeah. Just to just to put a point on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we look at biopsychosocial risk factors and and, and mental health um, and it's emotional health. People, again, people are in crisis these days and sometimes yeah. they act out, uh, you know, based upon their stressors mm-hmm. and they're based upon their um you know, their life factors. And, and we, we recognize that. And that's why we apply a restorative therapeutic approach before anything else. Love the proactivity, love the partnerships. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us today to discuss, I think, a really important piece of prevention of workplace violence, specifically in healthcare. I'm very familiar with risk assessment. The threat assessment topic is a little bit newer um, for many of us. And so I certainly learned a lot about that today and, and really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise with me and with the entire audience. And big thanks to everyone who joined us for today's podcast. We do believe that together, focusing on prevention efforts will help to ensure a safe environment for all. So thanks so much and have a great day.